0: If you have your Bibles, take those and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We will be in verses 17 through verse 22 today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, we have the text on the screen. You can follow along that way if you prefer. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, we don't say this very often, but I think we want to make sure that you know. If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the backs of the pews. Uh, Feel free to take that with you home and consider that our gift to you. Uh, we want everyone who comes to Redeemer Fellowship Church to own a Bible. And so if you don't own one, feel free to take that with you and consider that a gift. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is where we are. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews eleven, seventeen 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come now to this time in our worship service where we dedicate our attention, we dedicate our time and our energy directly to your word. Lord, we ask today as we study your word, as I preach today, Lord, that you would bless this time, Lord, that it might be for us a means of grace by which we uh, receive the blessings of Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray today as uh, the words come out of my mouth, Lord, that you would guide them, that you would direct them, that by the power of the Spirit they would go forth, and Lord, that it would serve some good for the congregation. And Lord, where I err, I pray that you would correct in in the ears of the hearers and in their hearts and in their minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am so thankful today to get to start this worship service with a baptism um, for various reasons, Uh, namely, we don't get to do this as often as we would like, and so every time we get to to baptize someone, it's a a reason to celebrate. But when I think about baptism, and even this morning as myself and Adam spent time uh, bringing in this horse trough into the sanctuary and taking time to fill it up making accommodations to where the mess wouldn't be too big and and going through all of the rigmarole makes me think that there are probably people out there that would say, that seems like a lot of work. seems like a lot of work. Why not just do it the way other churches do it? Why not just sprinkle on the head? Why not just anoint with oil or, or, or the like? In fact, the first time we did a baptism, we asked the church that we were using their space, hey, is it okay if we do a a baptism here. We have someone that came to faith in Christ and we would like to baptize them. And her response was, well, yeah, sure. I, I think the pastor even has some uh, holy water from Jerusalem that, that you could use. <laughs> I don't think he has enough <laughs> for, for the way that we baptize. Uh, but even in the, the act of, of all that we go through to bring in this baptismal and to, to completely soak this individual right before we're about to gather together for worship, it is largely an inconvenience. Uh, some might say, and indeed in ways it it is, and yet this is the way the Lord has commanded us to do this. And as much as it is an inconvenience for us today, throughout history, baptism in this way was so controversial. And in fact, to baptize in this way at times throughout history was to risk death. That in fact, there were people who died because they were baptized by immersion as a believer. And you might ask the question, why would it be that someone would would go through such a great risk, would risk so much just to be dunked in water, just to be baptized the way the Bible says to be baptized? And I think it perfectly leads us to our text today and perfectly in line with all of Hebrews 11 to say that the reason that these Christians throughout history, throughout church history, would have been willing to risk their very lives and in fact die for the sake even of obeying the Lord in proper baptism is because they trusted in the promises of God. They trusted in the promises of God that this life is not all there is. That to identify yourself with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection is worth the risk. And that whatever may come after that, whatever may be done to you because of that, it will be worth it even to the point of death because the promises of god are true all those who choose to by faith to by faith and obedience identify themselves with christ know that it is worth it they do so because they believe the promises of god and to believe a promise like that that might even bring about death for you is a powerful thing and it's not something that we are all that accustomed to as human beings And I think the reason for that is the reason it is so foreign to us to think that someone would risk their lives to be baptized in this way or that the the writers or the characters throughout Hebrews would risk their lives for the sake of God. The reason why the promises of God seem to an extent unrealistic to the conscience of unbelievers is because for those of us here on earth, in an earthly sense, humanly speaking, promises are so untrustworthy. Promises between human beings are not all that trustworthy. We make promises all the time, do we not? We make promises. We receive promises. We have promises made to us. For those of you who are parents in here, you know that you promise things to your children all the time, and and in many cases we are uh, we do not follow through on those promises. We make promises to our friends, to our brothers and sisters. We make promises left and right, and even though we might not say the words "I promise to give your word to." Say that you will do something or or will not do something is, in fact, in and of itself a promise. For we know that the Lord, as he spoke to the patriarchs, as he spoke to people throughout the, the word of God, did not always say, I promise this. And yet when the Lord said, I will do this, you knew that it was a guarantee. It was a promise. But earthly speaking, we're not used to this kind of trustworthy promise. If you're familiar with the movie Mary Poppins, you'll know that Mary Proppins refused to promise the children that she would be back. She said, that would be a pie crust promise. Easily made, easily broken, just like a pie crust. And I would propose that, in a sense, all human promises are like pie crust promises. Because just as easily as we can make them, so regularly and so often and so easily, they are broken. Sometimes because of our own sinfulness, because of our own failures... Sometimes because we were prevented by means outside of us, sometimes even because we were prevented by death. But the fact remains that there is a number of reasons why earthly promises are so easily broken and therefore so hard to trust. And so our our point, I think, in Hebrews today and all throughout Hebrews 11 is to see that this is not so with the promises of God. The promises of God are not easily broken. In fact, they are never broken. If the promises of human beings are pie crust promises, then it could be said that the promises of God are forged. They are cast. For you Marvel fans in here, you could say that they are adamantium promises, perhaps. And for our Star Wars fans, maybe they're Beskar promises. Promises of God that are firm, that are cast, that can never be destroyed, that can never fall away. They are firm. They are lasting. They are eternal and therefore they are trustworthy. Trustworthy to the point that those who came before us would be willing to die in obedience to Christ because they trust his promises. So much so that there are those who were even martyred for their faith in the promises of God because they were that trustworthy. And my title for today I think serves as to, to get the point of our message today which is that the promises of God are true through the ups and the downs. That's what I want us to see today. We are going to look today at the faith of four different people in our text. Four different people whose faith was noteworthy. But their faith is noteworthy not because of the quality of them, not because of the quality or quantity of their faith in and of itself, but because the quality of the promises that their faith was resting in. It is because of that, the grounds of our faith, the grounds of our confidence that these four men are presented here for us today. We have four examples in front of us that actually are represented by four generations of fathers and sons. And we will see how the promises of God are trustworthy in each and every situation from generation to generation. The promises of God are trustworthy Let's look first at our first example of a man of faith here. This uh, example of Abraham. Point number one, the promises of God are true in difficult times. We read in verse 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The Holy Spirit at this point in Hebrews, as we have been looking at these individuals of faith, those who by faith were united to the promises of God, we now come actually returning to Abraham after looking briefly at Sarah, after looking at Abraham already. We come back to Abraham, and the Holy Spirit draws our attention to this rather well-known event from the Old Testament where the Lord commanded Abraham to do the unthinkable. The Lord commanded Abraham, take your son Isaac and go and make of him a sacrifice. The Lord commanded Abraham, you might recall, to to take his son, the son who he had waited for, the son through whom the Lord had said the promises will come, the blessings will come, take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord think as a as a parent in here we we don't often like to think of the idea of our children being hurt or of our children dying and yet this story i think it seems inescapable this text would insist that our minds be drawn in this way and i think this is the case because we are intended to see the difficulty with which it would have been to obey this command for those of you who are parents in here and even frankly if you're not And you love children? Imagine the command that was given to Abraham here to take his son and offer him to the Lord on the altar. And that's exactly what Abraham does. Abraham takes Isaac, carries him up to the top. Well, he doesn't carry him. He takes him up to the top of Mount Moriah. And there, after preparing the altar, preparing the wood, he places his son Isaac bound on the altar And the text says that figuratively he did receive him back from the dead. And it says this, why? Because in Abraham's mind, Isaac was sacrificed. Every intention of Abraham was set on plunging that knife into the body of his son there on the altar. And we know the story, we know that miraculously the Lord stopped Abraham, said, do not harm Isaac, and then provided for him a lamb to be sacrificed. And this is an amazing story. And it's amazing because it causes us to realize. Just how hard it would have been to obey this command of God. What would motivate Abraham to obey such a command? It was the certainty with which Abraham knew that this was the child. Through whom the blessing of God would come. It was his confidence in the surety of the promises of God this is just how sure and how confident Abraham was that even his very own son he was willing to kill because the Lord commanded him to do so and then what we see in verse 18 it seems as though would make this obedience even harder in verse 18 he says of Isaac of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named Abraham knew full well that this boy that he was about to sacrifice on the altar was the one through whom his offspring was declared that it would come. The one through whom the Lord promised, this is how the blessing will come. You will become a father of many nations through Isaac, and yet now Abraham is about to kill this son of the promise. And we might think that would make the command all that much harder, knowing that this is the one who I'm supposed to receive offspring through. And yet, in a sense, I really think that it was this reality that made the obedience of Abraham possible because Abraham knew the promises of God, the promise that through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Having that promise, having that given to Abraham, he said, I know whatever may come, even if I even if I kill my son, as the Lord has commanded, he will be the offspring through whom I will be blessed as the father of many nations. It was his confidence in this promise, I think, that made obedience possible. Because Abraham knew that even the very knife in his hand could not thwart the promises of God. It's fascinating that even this early on, the author of Hebrews reveals to us about Abraham That he had an understanding and a confidence that the curse of Genesis 3 that resulted in death was going to be reversed. And even death itself could be overturned by the power of God. That he was confident that the Lord could even bring his son back from the dead. As he says in 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham's confidence in the promises of God is so great that even now he knows that God can and will overturn the curse that started all the way back in Genesis 3. He knew the promise of God that the seed of the woman would come who would crush the seed of the serpent, that all would be restored, that all would be redeemed, and that even death itself could not thwart God's promises. So we see then from Abraham's example, God's promises can be trusted. They can be trusted even through the most difficult of times, and they cannot be thwarted even by death. Point number two, the promises of God are true in spite of wickedness. The next illustration we have, in fact, the the very one who was just almost offered on the altar, who was almost killed, now is presented in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Again, think with me back to this story of Jacob and Esau. It was a rather amazing and rather uh, sad story, if you think about it. Because how is it that Jacob was blessed by his father Isaac? It happened through a deception, did it not? Jacob, having gone into his father, pretending to be Isaac. Who was, Isaac, or who was Esau? Esau was the firstborn, the one who the blessing was to go to. He was the heir. He was the firstborn. By all rights, by all accounts, Esau should have been the one to be blessed by Isaac. And yet what happened? Jacob, along with his mother, entered into this deception, put on fur on his arms to make himself feel like his brother Esau. He he made himself smell like his brother Esau. He cooked what he claimed was his game that he had gone out and killed, pretending to be his brother Esau. And deceived his father Isaac, who was poor in his eyesight. And ultimately, Isaac, in this deception, blessed Jacob. And it seems to be a strange turn of events that Abraham blessed the wrong son by accident, and yet, what we see is that he still ends up here in Hebrews, commended for his faith in the midst of this mix-up. In the midst of this wickedness, this deception, He is still, Isaac, commended for his faith in blessing Jacob. We hear the story of Jacob and Esau, and it can be very easy for us to sympathize with Esau, can't it? That's not fair. He was deceived. He should have gotten that birthright. We maybe hear his plea and say, Father, bless me. Give me some blessing. And it seems to us as though Isaac certainly could have said, Forget what I said earlier, Esau gets the blessing. And to us, that might seem just. We read the story of of what Jacob did and still received the blessing, and we, we say, and I think understandably, that's not fair. That's not fair that Esau's blessing was taken from him and given to Jacob in this deception. And let me say this, you are right. It's not fair, and praise God for it. Praise God for the illustration that we have here, because what is behind our saying that this isn't fair is the fact that we know that Esau deserved the blessing because he was the firstborn. Jacob didn't deserve this blessing, and yet he got it anyway. And I want you to stop and think about that for a moment and consider why this would be good news for us. Do we deserve the blessings of God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The blessings of God are not deserved by us, even though we so desperately need them. And even though by God's grace they are granted to us, even though we don't deserve it. Pastor Alistair Begg says about this portion of Scripture that the blessings of God are not given to those who deserve them, but to those who need them. This is the good news for us today. That the blessings of God are not given to us because of our our deserving of these blessings. But rather they are given to us in spite of the fact that we are wicked. And that we don't deserve these blessings. And yet the Lord has graciously bestowed them upon us. The song we sang earlier said that the Lord died for us while we were sinning. This is the good news of the gospel. That we don't deserve the blessings of God. And yet they are ours anyway in Christ Jesus What is the lesson that we should learn here? Should we learn from this story that we can somehow trick and scheme our way into the promises of God? Absolutely not. Jacob is not put forward here in this story as an example for us to follow. What we ought to see, what we ought to consider is the faith demonstrated by Isaac, that he believed that the promises of God were trustworthy and true, even when they were bestowed on wicked men. Isaac's confidence in the promises of God were so sure and so firm that he knew that even Jacob's wickedness was not enough to thwart God's promises. And that is good news for us today. So we've seen that God's promises are true in spite of difficulty. They are true in spite of wickedness. And now we see in the next portion that the promises of God are true in spite of confusion. We see this in verse 21, this story now of Jacob, the one who has just deceived his way into getting the promise. Now he is commended for his faith, saying, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over his staff. And I would wager that this is a story that many of us have completely forgotten about, completely glossed over. It's not one that we think of often when we think of uh, of. The story of Jacob. And yet this is the illustration that we are giving. The story of when Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, his grandchildren. And I I want us to to look at Genesis 48, this event and where Jacob blesses his grandsons. Genesis 48, verse 13 through 19. I want to read for us today. You're welcome to turn there with me. You can listen if you would like. Genesis 48, 13 through 19, we see says this. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, Israel being Jacob, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, It displeased him, and he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What happened in this story was Jacob, as he was blessing his grandsons, the sons of Joseph, and customarily was right to, uh, as we have seen, bestow the greater blessing on the firstborn, and you would use your right hand for that. And what we see here in the story of, of Jacob blessing these grandsons is that as they are brought to him, he reaches his hands out, but does something strange. He crosses his arms. Joseph brought these two specifically in a way that one would be near his right hand and one would be near his left, so that the firstborn would receive the greater of the right, the blessing of the right hand, the secondborn would receive the blessing from the left. And Jacob mixed things up. He switched his arms, switched his hands, much to the dismay of Joseph, who sought to correct him. And yet, this was no accident. I've chosen in my my point here to use the word confusion, but I mean it only in a certain way because Jacob himself certainly was not confused, not like his father was. We do know that while Jacob was, like his father, poor in eyesight at this point in his life, this was no accident that he had just committed. He was not confused and accidentally put his hands on the wrong grandson, but rather this is something he did on purpose. So the confusion does not lie with Jacob, but certainly Joseph is confused. Certainly the grandsons were probably confused. Certainly we are confused. Why would he do this? Why would he change his hands up? Why would he not do it the way he ought? And We might be able to rationalize how God's blessing could remain, how it could be trustworthy through the story of Isaac. After all, Isaac being an old man, almost blind, so blind he couldn't even see his grandson, couldn't tell that he was petting an animal fur, not his son's arm. I mean, he was blind, blind, right? And he was deceived. He was tricked, okay? So we could understand, we could rationalize in our mind how, okay, the Lord saw how he was kind of duped and the Lord made an adjustment and God's promise is faithful even through that, that sort of deception. We could sort of rationalize it that way. And yet the author of Hebrews wants us to see next, the next step. That not only are the promises of God trustworthy out of accident or out of a deception, but that even when Jacob knew what he was doing, the promises of God were trustworthy. Jacob knew exactly what was happening here. He was not confused. Now, the question we might ask is why he did this. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know why Jacob crossed his arms and blessed the opposite one. It could be that the Lord had given him some sort of insight, some sort of knowledge, perhaps a a prophecy of some sort that's not disclosed to us in Scripture, and he knew who was going to receive the greater blessing. The Lord commanded him to do so. We don't know. It could be that he was simply following in line with what seemed to be a pattern as Over and over again through Scripture, we had seen the lesser be blessed rather than the one who deserved it. We saw this in Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael and Cain and Abel. Over and over again, this was the pattern. So perhaps Jacob saw this pattern and and sought to continue it so that the Lord's promises might be glorified even through those who don't deserve it. But we don't know. But one thing we do know and one thing we can see is that in spite of what might seem confusing to us, in spite of what might seem wrong to us, God's promises and his blessings cannot be thwarted. Even when someone does this on purpose, the promises of God are true. And then point number four, finally, verse 22 directs us to the story of Joseph. And point number four, the promises of God are true even when everything is awesome. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, you know that for Joseph, everything was not awesome all the time. In fact, Joseph had it pretty rough. Was sold into slavery by his brothers. Was thrown into prison wrongly. Going from a slave to a prisoner. And then ultimately making his way to the very courts of Pharaoh. And yet, at the time when our text presents Joseph, things are going pretty good. In verse 22... It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The fourth and final character that we have presented here, Joseph, is a fascinating story that is presented for us here. Because if you know the story of Joseph, it's one of the most amazing, one of the most uh, gospel-centered stories in all of the Old Testament You will hardly find a a more typological picture of Christ in the Old Testament than that of Joseph. And of all the things that happened in Joseph's life, what could be said about Joseph? Tons could be said. It could be said of how he so faithfully served, even as a slave in Potiphar's house, how he was faithful, how even when he was wrongfully treated, he still never lost hope, never lost faith. We could speak of his humility as he stood before Pharaoh, of his Wisdom as he directed all of the food that was to be distributed. Certainly, we could look at the time when his brothers came to him, and and he declared one of the most amazing statements: "What you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good." And yet, the author of Hebrews doesn't mention any of that. Instead, he mentions his bones. It makes me wonder if the author of Hebrews ever read the story of Joseph. It almost seems like he. He did it the way I used to do book reports, where I'd like go through and like skim the first part of the story and then like jump to the end and be like, ah, okay, that, the bones. Yeah, I'll talk about that in my, in my story here. That's, the, that's the, the feel we almost get from this, right? But as you know, that's not the case. This is not an incidental story that's being discussed here. In fact, it was written down for us in Genesis for a purpose, and now it is brought back up again here in hebrews and it's important for us to see why why is it that joseph's faith be commended as he gave direction concerning his bones the reason is for joseph everything was going great at this point in his life where was joseph at this point he was second in command in egypt only the pharaoh had more authority than joseph He had all that he could want, all that he could desire. He had liberty to care for and look after his family and his people. He was not in want at all. The Lord had blessed Joseph so greatly. And yet, here, Joseph, at the end of his life, with everything going great, everything going well for him, everything was truly amazing for Joseph. What is his concern for? Where is his focus? His focus is on what is going to become of the people of Israel. It says here at the end of our passage, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. Even as things were going great for Joseph, He had every reason to be focusing on things that were around him, to be rejoicing in these things, to be looking at where he would be buried here in Egypt. He could have had the most amazing tomb he wanted. He could have had the most elaborate ceremony, but that was not his concern because Joseph never forgot the promises of God. As good as things were for him, as good as things were for the people there in Egypt at this time, Joseph knew the promises of God. And that one day they would leave Egypt and would go back to their homeland, that of Canaan. And this is where his attention lies. His attention is set firmly on the promises of God. And it so often seems to be the case that when things are going great for us in life, it is sometimes in those moments when it is easiest to forget the promises of God. When it's easy to take our, our focus and our mind off of those things and set them on this, etern- this uh this temporary life that we have here before us and we lose sight of the promises of god not so with joseph for joseph even here in the last portion of his life when things are going well he never forgot the promises of god and knew that one day they would leave and his request was what take my bones with you take me to the promised land for as good as things are here in egypt this is not my home But one day, our people will return home. God will restore his people. And when that happens, take my bones with you. And what we see in the book of Exodus, it's almost a a blip. It's almost a footnote. After the angel of death has come through on the evening of Passover, and and all of the firstborn are killed who did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And the people of Israel are, are gathering their stuff, and they are preparing to leave Moses tells us that in the midst of this exodus, in the midst of this leaving, what did they do? They went to the tomb of, Mo- of Joseph and dug up his bones just as he, comm- as, he had, as he had commanded because he had faith in the promises of God. Church family, we can trust the promises of God are true in the ups, in the downs, and in everything in between. In each one of these characters of faith, we see a consistent trend The point of the story is not so much the greatness of this man, but the trustworthiness of the promises of God. In fact, the author of Hebrews throughout the book is always assuming that his readers have a certain knowledge, a certain understanding of the Old Testament, that they would have read the book of Genesis. And let me tell you this, the book of Genesis does not present these men in a perfect light. By no means does Moses, as he is writing in the book of Genesis, whitewash their story. We see this particularly in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was mess up after mess up in their lives. We see in the life of Abraham. He lied about his wife. Literally allowed his wife to be taken into the king's harem. Why? Because he was afraid. Wildest thing is, he did it again later on in the story. Again said, hey, tell them you're my sister so that they won't kill me. He see, we see that he made the mistake of sleeping with a maidservant to try and bring about the promises of God. Abraham was by no means a perfect character, nor was he perfect in his confidence. Same with Isaac. Isaac did the same thing his father did. Lied concerning his wife, saying, Tell them you're my sister so that they might not kill me. We see Jacob, who, as we've already discussed, deceived his his father so that he might steal his brother's blessing. The point of the story is not to say, these men are so good and so great, therefore be like them. The point of the story is to say the promises of God are so good and so true that even all of these yahoos could not undo the promises of God. They are firm, they are secure, they are set. What we see here is that God's promises are true even in the midst of wicked, sinful men which makes the example all the more encouraging to us. In this, we see that the promises of God are so sure. God is so faithful and so able to fulfill his promises that nothing can interfere that would thwart that. Sin cannot thwart God's promises. Deception cannot thwart God's promises. Even human choice cannot thwart God's promises. They are true over and over again, from generation to generation, generation to generation This is where the good news gets really good for us because God has also given us his promise. Acts 2.39 says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for us and for our children and for their children and for their children's children. All those whom the Lord calls to himself, the promises of God stand and are sure and are confident. What has God promised his people? Well, that's a long list. But well, we could look at just a few of these promises that the Lord has given. He has promised us an inheritance. In Galatians 3, 26 through 29, we see, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as, as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are heirs to the inheritance that God has given us, the same promise that he gave Abraham. We see also that he has promised us a home. John 14, 1-3 says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God has promised us a home. And finally, God has promised us life eternal. We could go to passage after passage, but let's just look at a couple. John 11, 25 through 26 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This promise is reiterated in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. We have received trustworthy and good promises from a God who never lies, who always keeps his promises, who roots them firm, who casts them. They are not baked like pie crust. They are cast like a hard metal. Brothers and sisters, if your faith is in Christ Jesus today, even when you mess up, even when your confidence and your assurance wavers, God's promises remain, and nothing can keep them from being fulfilled. Nothing can keep God's promises from being fulfilled, not even you. This is why Paul says in the book of Romans, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing shall separate us Shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I want to close today with an an illustration that is 100% a stolen illustration, stolen from D.A. Carson. Uh, uh, Mike sent me uh, an amazing clip this week from D.A. Carson where he told the story, an illustration. He spoke of, of two Jews right before the Passover, the very first Passover in Egypt. And imagine, if you will, these two Jews, as they are standing there talking, as they have prepared for the Passover, and they know what's coming, they know what the Lord is about to do, and one of the Jews says to the other, one of the Jews, the Israelites, says to the other, man, can you believe what's about to happen today? Can you believe what's about to take place tonight? And it's really scary. I'm nervous. I'm nervous about what's about to happen. And the other guy responds and says, nervous? I'm not nervous. Why should I be nervous? God has told us, put the blood on your doorpost and you'll be saved. God's, God's promises are good and sure. Haven't you put the, door, the blood on your doorpost?" And the other guy responds, yes, I, I have. I've put it on there. But still, it's, it's scary. I'm afraid. I'm nervous about what's going to happen this evening. The other guy says, I'm not nervous. Why do I, I don't have anything to be nervous about. And then D.A. Carson poses the question, who was saved that night during the Passover? Which of these two Israelites was saved? The answer is both of them were saved. Neither one of them found destruction that evening, but both of them were brought through the Passover safely. Because the Passover, the the basis, the grounds of their hope was not on how firm it was or the quality of their assurance of their hope, but their hope was set on the fact that the blood of the Lamb was covering their doorpost. For those of us in here today, oftentimes we find it hard to trust the promises of God. We find it hard to rest assured. We find it hard to have confidence at times. And yet in the same way, all those whose doorposts had the blood of the lamb spread upon it, all of those who are united to Christ by faith can have confidence and will be saved. Not because the quality and quantity of our faith is so great, not because we exercise it in such a firm and vibrant way compared to other people, but because our faith is in Jesus Christ. It is the object of our faith that gives us assurance, not the quality, not the quantity. This is where our hope is. And church family, if your hope is in anything other than Christ Jesus today, then I would encourage you, the blood of the lamb is not on your doorpost. If you are thinking for a moment that, well, if I just hide under my bed, maybe the, the, the death angel will not take my child. If I just try and pray really hard or be really good, maybe I will be spared and don't have to put the blood on the doorpost, church family, there's only one way, there's only one way to escape the wrath of God, the judgment to come, and that is through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. But rest assured in this, if you are washed by the blood of Christ, if his blood has covered your sins, then you have no reason to be afraid. But even if you are afraid, trust all the more in Christ and his confidence and his goodness and his promises, for they are sure even through the ups and the downs. Let's pray.